Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Well, hello there. We're at, what, three, four weeks, three weeks into the election campaign, two weeks to go. Mark Kenny here with Democracy Sausage coming to you from the ANU. Uh, this podcast is a joint production of Policy Forum and the ANU. As I said, my name is Mark Kenny, and I'm joined by a uh, great cast today for a discussion about where things are up to in Australian politics, particularly in this election campaign. Professor Kim Rubenstein from the uh, law school, a specialist in uh, citizenship law. How are you, Kim? I'm well, thanks, Mark. We also have Quentin Grafton, a, a, an economist, an environmental economist, a specialist in water. Great to have you here, Quentin. Yeah, happy to be here. And a couple of colleagues I have here from the uh, School of Politics and International Relations, to which I'm also connected, Jill Shepard. Great to have you here, Jill. G'day, Mark. And Maria Teflaga, who's uh, here with me most weeks. Glad, glad to have you, Maria. Hello, Mark. Hello, everyone. <laughs> It's uh, as I say, it's an interesting moment really for this election campaign because yesterday we had the the policy launch by Labor. There's been a lot of early voting going on. There's a lot of commentary about, um, I suppose, whether this election campaign is typical. Anyone have any views about that? About the you know, does this election campaign feel uh, sort of ordinary to you, Kim? Well, I'm thinking broader in terms of actually the people who have nominated to run and so are therefore involved in this election campaign. And I've been sort of thinking through the diversity of representation. And in, in some ways, there are not, there is disappointingly little change in terms of gender representation or, or attempts to be represented. I've done, I've had a look of that 1,056 candidates for the House of Reps, 341 are women. So it's quite interesting, isn't it, that even though Labor are terrific in in terms of their attention to it, the actual uptake of women to nominate and run, and that leads to other discussions we can have later about dual citizenship and multiculturalism. Yeah. Well, but it's it's a really interesting of, number, that. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's roughly a third, but of course the critical thing there is about whether those candidates are in winnable positions. Correct, uh, no, yes. You know, if someone's sitting at number four on a Senate ticket, uh, yeah. even for the major parties, yes. Or, yes. or in a seat that's uh, safe and they're just sort of making up the numbers. Indeed. Uh, that's really the important thing there as well. Yes, yes. Although I think that the whole question about who is prepared to nominate and that notion of active citizenship is quite an interesting one too. And I guess the thing that hasn't changed is that there is that that sense of all uh, the superficiality of what's going on compared to what people are really expecting from their politicians. Jill, you have any thoughts about the campaign as a general observation? Uh, it is ordinary. 
when when you asked, is it an ordinary campaigner? But yeah, it's pretty ordinary. Um, but it's very typical. I mean, it, this feels like deja vu. Mm. And I well, these things are kind of formulaic, I suppose. So there's always going to be a certain a certain kind of repetitiveness to them. What the parties are trying to do, but um, in other ways, it feels quite odd to me. I mean, we have an opposition that's been ahead all the way through, leading up to the election campaign, remains ahead. We've got a government that has had many many difficulties, uh, sort of disintegrating in office in a way, and it is trying to make up ground. So, you know, there's been a lot of talk about how it's been. Um, how, you know how Scott Morrison's been campaigning more freely, and 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 Bill Shorten's been campaigning a bit more defensively. Has that changed as the campaigns progressed? I mean, I never really noticed that. I've never noticed that Bill Shorten is particularly defensive or anything else. I think they're both um, trying their best to be authentic. Uh, while also staying on message. And I talked about this last time, this incredible tendency towards risk aversion. They're doing what they've done in every election because they know that they can do it. Neither party wants to rock the boat or uh, do something that may backfire. Now, the other interesting thing about that is that we don't necessarily know that a uh, you know, uh, something positive or something different that goes wrong would actually matter because, and we're going to talk about pre-poll voting, most of us have made up our minds long ago. And I think that's relatively a good thing that that none, nothing that happens now is actually going to change our minds. And we don't want that kind of spectacle uh, campaign that feeds into uh, voter decision-making and, and we don't want to make rash decisions. I think there are some subtle differences. Like I agree with both of you that the sort of formula of like what all the things that are supposed to happen in an election campaign happen. But what is kind of really interesting to me is the fact that um, social media has allowed candidates increasingly to sort of escape the shackles of party discipline, which, you know, this level of party discipline is actually like a product of technology as well. It's, it's a product of fax machines. So once parties could fax out daily lines to all of their candidates, they started all sounding the same. And so I think it's kind of interesting that in many ways there's probably no real surprises, but parties are sort of struggling to run this sort of national campaign. But at the same time, there's an acknowledgement um, of the reality, probably because we can actually kind of measure it or see it because we can see social media or we can see what people are doing in different constituencies. The people will vote in different constituencies. The result will actually come down to how people feel and vote in different constituencies. And we can actually hear differentiating voices, whereas before it was one national voice run singularly from leaders mm. can on we that though? bus. Yeah, I who, think so. Who, who is like... I can't think of any candidates who are sort of branching out and being different. I think they have this need to be authentic, which they didn't need to do before. You know, now they say, you know, I'm candidate X and these are my values, whereas before they used to say, you know, I'm from the Labor Party. Mm, I mean, I th- I'm, I'm not so convinced. I, I think I'm with Jill on this. I mean, it, it seems like some Liberal candidates, for example, uh, you know, they have posters around their electorates where they don't mention the Liberal Party uh, because they, they know that the brand's in a bit of trouble uh, and they're trying to be – this is particularly the case in Victoria where, you know, the Libs oh, are, yeah. are trying to sort of, I think, be a little more progressive in some cases than uh, their LNP counterparts say in, in Queensland. But it's it's hardly bold when you think about it. That's kind of a, a pretty timid sort of response. Quentin Grafton, as far as you can see the election campaign, I mean, we talk about – Jill makes the point about both sides being risk-averse. I think Labor would probably bristle at that in a way. I, I, I know I've written the same thing, so I'm not. I'm not <laughs> certainly not remonstrating with you on that point. But 
Labor insists that, well, hang on, we've got a pretty broad, bold program here of tax reform. What's your assessment of that? Is it is it really out of the box? Yeah, I think it is. It's unusual, I think, for an opposition to put all its policies pretty much out there way ahead of time. So well before the election was called, Labor had a whole series of policies and a whole series of areas. Obviously, there's an announcement during the election, which, of course, they they, they did last night and are going to go in the next couple of weeks. But I'll just go back to the point that you raised about what's different about this election. It may well be that I was asleep at previous elections. <laughs> Possible. <laughs> Certainly a possibility. But but it strikes me that, that the number of candidates that have been disendorsed this time round seems an, an alarmingly large number. I think it's like 15 at the mm. moment from you know different parties. That strikes me as gets back to the issue that Maria was saying in terms of social media. Yeah. Now, a lot of these were misdemeanors or crimes, <laughs> et cetera, that were done some years in the past, at least in some cases anyway. And so this, this idea of history does carry with you both as a candidate and I think also as a party. So parties have baggage. I reckon it's a really <laughs> fascinating point. Yeah, I, I saw yeah, Sam Destiari yeah, talking. Yeah. You know, he's obviously someone whose political career, uh, you know, was was comet-like in or, or sort of meteor-like in terms of its uh, spectacularness. But it, it's, he did really crash to earth. And he was making this point the other night on you can't ask that. You know, a very revealing kind of uh, thing with 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 former politicians. Uh, asking, answering questions that, uh, you know, you, you, giving some honesty that you just don't normally get from people who are still in office. One of the things he said, which I thought was true, was that we end up, we, we, we want our political candidates to be so denuded of any problems, of any background, mm. of any angularity or sort of difference of opinion. And then we complain that they're really boring, that they're sort of white bread, cookie cutter type personalities. But we kind of simultaneously demand that. And it think? comes back to Kim's point, I think, about who the hell would run. Right, it made me start to think. Oh, what have I said or done? And as Maria knows, because we work together, I say some really dumb things, and I'm sure <laughs> no, I've put, no, you don't. I'm sure I've said really dumb things in writing, and it terrifies me. And I think it has a differential effect on women. I yeah, think, that's an interesting. Point. I think women are probably less likely to take that risk because the fallout is worse. I think it's really interesting also the different responses to different backstories because um, the Scott Morrison story in the Saturday paper over this past weekend mm. in terms of his previous um, activity in terms of his previous positions, to me, and maybe I'm just not looking in the right media, it doesn't seem to have the same um, draw card as these other um, alleged question marks behind other individuals. So that's the other interesting aspect as to how the media then responds and how different parties respond and different politicians respond. Um, I know in the seat of McNamara down in, in Victoria, mm. um, Kate Ashmore has got a huge amount of attention from things that she'd said a long time mm. ago. Whereas if you compare that to Scott Morrison's, you know, the attention to his previous work, you just sort of do question... Who chooses to place the attention on the you know supposed question marks or questions to do with appropriateness for office? Those things, I think. Are yeah, really no, they, they, they are really good questions. The other one that comes to mind uh, to me often when I'm thinking about this is uh, the extent to which we are, uh, you know, whether this is just a function of social media and and whether that is the you know that is the problem or whether we're actually you flip it around the other way are we now getting a window into what people really think given that politics is so much 
artifice these days, Maria. It seems to me that in one way, you know, we're finding out, oh, well, this is what this candidate really thinks about Muslims or what this candidate really thinks about women. You know, they the parties have these, as, as you were saying before, they have this great uniformity of message. Um, but social media is the kind of inner thoughts registered online and there forever. So I, I think it's two things. I mean, I, I do think that social media essentially is a set of tools that enables MPs to sort of talk to their constituents directly if they want to do that. And it also allows scrutiny the other way. So we can search, you know, their Facebook posts and find out that they have these sort of unsavory opinions. But I think there is also a broader um, uh, phenomena here about party membership and party uh, decline in this country. I mean, mm. Australia has some of the lowest rates of party membership. Politics has been awful for a decade now. It's been um, unedifying. Mm. Um, it's been a coarseness of public debate. Uh, so to what Kim said earlier, like who would want to become an MP? And so the selection pool of people who want to do this job might be um, narrowing. And in those hard luck seats, as the parties like to call them, the ones that are unwinnable, perhaps it's not surprising that the people that put themselves forward are potentially more extreme than the community might mm. like. And now social media allows us to sort of see this, whereas in times past, you know, in the 80s or the 90s, we'd see the party label, well, you know, I've always voted this way, so I'll vote for this person. I don't know who they are. I've never seen them before. I'll never see them again. But so I, I do think that, you know, the more things stay the same or what, whatever that phrase is, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Mm. There's definitely continuities, but there are new opportunities available to parties and to citizens, some of which are positive, some of which are... Well, just to, it was Jill's um, uh, comment about who would want to be a, uh, a politician, but I do think it begs the question about how encouraging we are of active citizenship in its fullest sense. And yeah. I know mm. it's of, you expect me to say this, but this whole <laughs> Section 44 framing of it also is part of the problem because, um, I mean, I, I did write an opinion piece in the earlier iteration about how it would be helpful if the Australian Electoral Commission gave more guidance, not that it could be the decision maker, but gave more guidance. And that um, was taken up in the sense that we now have the nominees having to put all their historical information. As a result out. of which some candidates have been weeded out. Some, perhaps some actually better candidates have been weeded out. And we've ended up with some And of course, nuts. you know, the other aspect of it is that soon after the outcome of the elections, there is the window for an individual to challenge yeah. um, a person directly before the Court of Disputed Returns, which, of course, passes after a particular time. And that's why we had all the process of having to for Parliament to take it to the um, to the Court of Disputed Returns. But this time around, I think that there'll be several people who who have still question marks around them who have the potential for the losing candidates to take them to the Court of Disputed Returns. So that's, a, again, another aspect of... Um, the flow on from uh, a very outdated constitution, in my view, in terms of wanting to encourage a diversity of your population. Yes, a and very the, outdated constitution that's almost impossible to change, unfortunately. I disagree that it's – I mean, sure, we don't have a great history of constitutional change, but what we do have is a bipartisan – a history of success when there's a bipartisan approach. And I think there really is the potential, if you had great leadership, to have a joint message about the need for diversity in parliament and different ways to deal with the supposed conflict of interest that is meant to be the underlying issue under Section 44. I, I remain 
to I be know, convinced we, we on will that. continue to uh, have this I, I really I really do and and yeah. it's partly because I what I see in this whole social media f- uh, sort of era and the the some of the kind of values that are coming forward from from people that I guess we just didn't have access before access to before is a sense that there is the political class and then there's the rest of us and I think now the coming together of the liberal party and the labor party on some arcane question like that but isn't runs that, the risk of being seen by a large number of voters as being the political cast looking to looking after itself. But, it isn't, but, but I think it's the way you cast it because it's actually keeping out the people in the sense that if you think of the numbers of people who no, you're, have... You're arguing logic. Yeah. <laughs> but, the, but those voters out there are generally dual citizens or who have access yeah. to there's, dual citizenship. There's many millions of Australians yeah. who are in fact born outside of Australia. Yeah, yeah so I think in fact that's the way you count. If you had a parent born outside of Australia. Get us out and get I mean, you in. That's it's the, a huge proportion. Yeah. And, and no, I, I agree. But uh, it, it, it's, it's about it's, them rather than the politicians. I think if you cast it about enabling more of you to be in here than are currently able to because of these arcane and the numbers of us here are not actually about protecting ourselves but about making it a more diverse. Kim's just convinced me. Genuinely, because I was with you, Mark, I think it was self-serve. I think any push for constitutional reform on on, on the Section 44 issue would have been self-serving. I think if the parties did it, it would still be self-serving because I'm very cynical about the parties generally. Um, but I th- but Kim's just convinced me that it's probably a net good. Yeah, and if you well, you're actually talking about phrase- an electorate that seems to be embracing a, a completely facile, a vapid message from Clive Palmer just on the basis of how much he's spending. Well, that takes me back to the point that you made, Jill, about it all being um, that many people have voted or have already decided what they're going to do. And then that if that is the case, then of course this campaign is directed to those swinging voters. It's to the people who haven't decided. And so it, it doesn't impress us because it's really not speaking to those people who ha- have a more um, stable electoral position. And so in that sense... I guess that's that's no different, is it? To, in the past, that they ha- they have done their their you know their work as to who they need to target to convince to in this period, and that's why we see what we see. Well, yeah. we can overestimate Clive Palmer's strategic brilliance too, right? I mean, yep. <laughs> we can't overestimate his wallet though. Well, Fifty million dollars goes well, a long way. I think way, we can think. overestimate his wallet as well, right? He, kind of that much money. What about? All the debts and anyway. No, no, I agree. <laughs> I think I think there's. I mean, we've discussed this before, and 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 I don't think there'd be much disagreement about it. I mean, it, it's a it's an, a remarkable phenomenon that th- this uh, has happened in Australian politics, and we see so much money being spent and potentially seats in Parliament effectively effectively being bought by by simply raising profile. But look, we'll come back to to that, and we'll come back to talk about Labor's launch and some of the uh, both the policies and the optics of that. You're listening to Democracy Sausage with Mark Kenny coming to you from ANU, a, a production of uh, the Policy Forum and the ANU. And uh, I have a stellar c- uh, cast with me at the moment, so just stay there and we'll be back in just a moment. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Okay, so let's look at uh, some of the uh, issues that arose from 
Labor's launch yesterday. Here we are. We're two weeks out from the the, uh, the election day itself. Uh, Labor's gone with its election launch. Uh, you might say a bit late in the piece, but a bit earlier than has been the, the custom in recent elections, perhaps a reflection of how many people are voting early. And also because Labor has a lot of its policy out there and I think is wanting to maintain some of the momentum. Quentin, uh, Grafton, you have uh, seen some of the, the – you, you remarked before about the policies that Labor has out there, a lot happening in the tax space. Uh, any surprises there in, in uh, what Labor's announced? Look, I, I didn't see the launch, so <laughs> – Well, you're like most Australians. <laughs> yeah, it was a Sunday I, afternoon. I can't so believe that. I, I, did, I did see some video of Bill Shorten at, at the launch and uh, I think they were trying to uh, deal with this issue of uh, women and support mm. for, for, for Bill Shorten and I think I think they did that fairly effectively but I'm not a, I'm not a woman uh, and I didn't see the entire launch. But well, look, one of but, the things yeah. that came up was this uh... – There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. This idea of a, a kind of an employment tax, uh, which would provide employers with a with tax deductibility for employing someone who was young or someone who was, you know, some under twenty five, I think, or over fifty five, trying to deal with youth unemployment and indeed with senior unemployment, that will resonate with a lot of voters. Certainly, the people who are unemployed. But uh, Labor has a number of policies around the issues of employment so and, and also in particular the fair go, the issue of a minimum wage and how the working poor basically can get by. So there's a set of policies I think directed to either unemployed or people who are employed but they don't earn very much money. And I think a lot of that is requiring a, a change in a tax system on the other side. So in other words, to, to pay for any additional benefits or additional programs, then they're going to have to do something on the other side. And that's why they've engaged in this tax revenue uh, in the context of, you know, particularly the, the one that's received the most amount of attention is the franking credits, mm. which is a tax refund is issue. But there are other issues around, uh, you know, obviously the um, uh, variety of other things in the context of housing, et cetera. Mm. Mm. But so, so I think that's the package that they've got. Uh, tax, yes, but tax and transfer. And the transfers are associated with these issues associated with working poor and the unemployed. Yeah. Jill Shepard, can I just, I'll come to you, Marie, but do, do you think they've done enough to, to sell the transfer end of this? I mean, the, obviously, the government is hammering away at them with, with, with a, you know, a blitz of ads and, and every comment the government makes is about Labor's tax plans. But of course, the, the upside of that for the government, uh, sorry, for a Labor government would be the spending in other areas. Have they, has Labor done enough to sort of sell the, the upside of its uh, policy? I've been really interested in this. So so first of all, public opinion is very much in favour of spending at the moment. So there's there's an opportunity there for either major party, and it has to be the Labor Party really. The Liberals can't uh, feasibly run on a, a big spending kind of policy platform. What I found interesting, and it touches on Quentin's point about how early they released some of these, particularly the, the housing um you know, or, or housing adjacent type policies. So you're talking negative gearing, and, and, capital capital gains. Gearing yeah. and capital, capital gains, gains, right? Um, but and they put them out there. They were quite well received. I don't think the media didn't take tear them to shreds or anything. And then they just sort of left them 
Mm-hmm. And it just felt like they were just sort of there in limbo. I thought if you were going to run that risk, if you were going to take the kind of, you know, fairly ballsy for recent Australian politics approach of of dangling policies out there, own them, you know, really back them. And Well, I, I mean, some of these policies, happen. to be fair, were taken to the last election, yeah. so they're not actually... Negative gearing was, mm. and the discount on the capital... Mm. Yeah. And then they didn't sort of do anything about it in the meantime, right? Well, they got very... I, I, I suppose what Labor would say is they got very close. They've prosecuted these arguments before... Uh, and they they didn't get thrashed at the election. In fact, they came you know they they came very Within close to fifty percent. Yeah, that's right. Mm. So anyway, um, it, it it's a v- very good point, I think. But um, we'll, we'll see what voters make of it. Um, what did you make of the launch, Maria? Oh, I I also didn't watch uh, the launch um, because I enjoy Sunday afternoon in the sunshine. Um, but what I think is actually kind of interesting about this um, this campaign and the launch is part of that is that um, that Labor is has had this really policy heavy um, discussion and has done for you know three three years. They've, they've they deliberately want to win um, with a mandate. And what I think is really interesting is the way that. They've actually sort of, you know, rightly or wrongly, been able to sustain this heavy policy discussion um, throughout this campaign, even if they're not always landing all of their lines really well. And they're effectively playing against a bit of a dead bat from the government because the government doesn't have a set of alternatives um, to this agenda, mm. right, about how we might reimagine the role of the state in the 21st century, which, you know, we all know Australians love government comparatively to other um, nations. We want the state to come in and and ease our um, lives for us. And, and they've really only got like this kind of cost argument, right? Well, it'll mm. cost too much. Well, it'll cost too much. Well, it'll cost too much. But they don't they don't have an answer to that. And um, Labor has at least been able to maintain um, its momentum and interest in effectively what is a sort of one-sided debate rather than a sort of a meaningful exchange between these two competing visions. And I think that's what's kind of interesting. But what I want to ask you, Mark, because I think you're the the one who did watch the launches, what about the optics? What about the theatre of it? What does it tell us about where Labor's going? Well, it's a very good question because I think it does actually frame a, a lot of uh, and speak to a lot of Labor's approach in this election campaign. And Quentin, you mentioned, for example, the number of women that were involved and that were sort of prominent in in the presentation. In fact, there were four women that spoke even before Bill Shorten got to the lectern. So Anastasia Palaszczuk, the the, 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 the Premier in Queensland where the launch occurred, there was Tanya Plibersek, there was Penny Wong, and then finally there was Chloe Shorten who were, among other things, revealed her alternative title as Bill's feminist conscience. Uh, and <laughs> she was a, it was a very classy presentation from her introducing her husband and, you know, sort of trying to humanise him. And on top of all of that, you had the entire front bench sitting on the stage with the leader when he spoke and indeed when those other uh, prominent women spoke beforehand. Uh, and I should say Pat Dodson spoke as well. So Labor was really, I think, selling a message that not only do we intend to represent modern Australia, we reflect modern Australia. And that is a deliberate contrast to what the government can put up um, you know, the government is really restricted in a couple of key ways, it seems to me, in this election. One goes to what you were saying about about its sort of economic position, Maria, and that is that it feels like it's actually – it, it, it used the budget to sort of launch into this election campaign and yet it's somewhat constrained by the fact that it has now put its budget out and that's it. It's got an economic story to tell and yet it's got not much more to say within that economic story and very little to say beyond it. 
Um, so you know, so there's that side of it, and, and it's constrained in a campaigning campaigning sense because it's built its entire election campaign really around Scott Morrison, a much more presidential style. Now, this may reflect. Uh, the fact that Bill Shorten is not particularly popular and so he can, you know, so Labor is actually selling the team and the broader representational message and so forth, its expertise. A lot of these Labor people are, are former ministers. They're very established names mm. in politics. Um, Morrison can't reasonably bring out the team. He doesn't want He doesn't want people reminded about the fact they all hate each other. Well, I mean, there's a bit of hate on both sides. I mean, yesterday at the launch, we had Gillard and Rudd uh, arrive there together. And there's been a bit of talk about whether that, you know, whether people actually buy that, uh, you know, Gillard and Rudd are talking to each other. Apparently, they didn't talk the entire time. Well, uh, maybe. But I actually, when they were introduced and they stood up, I'm pretty sure I saw Julia's hand go to sort of the small of uh, Kevin Rudd's back as, you know, sort of a gesture of inclusion. Uh, That is the nature of who Julia Gillard is, I suppose. Um, but can but, I go back yeah, to that optics on, too? Because I think it is really important in terms of a generational shift in politics. And even though I started off lamenting the actual numbers of women who have nominated, uh, even though you know that was the starting point in terms of nominations, what would be really interesting is if they did get in and there was that change in leadership. Yeah. What impact that then has on your future nominees in the sense of people saying, "Well, actually, we can have a diverse." Parliament, or we can have a diverse cabinet. It is possible, and that there, you know, to to you know, to what extent will that actually change the mood and the trust in? in I mean, you know, this is looking ahead, but mm-hmm. I I think that there is merit. Obviously, I think that there is merit to having that sort of optic yeah. out there because it's not only an image; they would be the people who would represent if they are elected a much more diverse. Um, governance system. Yeah, well, who would you wheel out if you if you could if you if it was just about votes and leaving aside realities that we know exist? If you if you could wheel out someone to represent the liberal side who could compete with that kind of optic, it would be Julie Bishop. And yet, if you Julie Bishop's leaving the parliament, yeah, or Kelly O'Dwyer. Yeah, I mean these these are people who have very high, particularly in Bishop's case, extremely high public recognition. But she's now a. Um, you know, a poster for what went wrong in the Liberal Party, yeah. what went wrong with Malcolm Turnbull's leadership, well, and, and she's leaving the parliament. To underscore this point, I, I'm pretty sure the, the Morrison cabinet actually has the highest number of women in uh, the ministry, uh, or at least cabinet, um, uh, since... Yeah, it's at seven, I think. Yeah, yeah, but they're all really junior. They right? are, and they are people who've... I mean, this is a, this is a bit of kind of reverse... Uh, affirmative action in a way mm. because they're actually now elevating women to try and patch up their sort of uh, structural problem of not having recruited enough. So they're, re- they're recruiting women now to the front bench from a pretty shallow pool on the back. And there is an academic literature on this about yep. women who come in to fix the problems that men have left behind. It's, yeah. it's your kind of... Um, well, a couple of them there haven't fixed them. They've they've done something else. Or they've made them F. worse. The kind yeah. Of, but, but it's the um, Christina Keneally kind of Anna Bly, come in and fix things and, mm. and be a friendly face. And the other is um, bringing in women too early into the ministry before they have experience and then they're more likely to run into trouble. And so it actually just reinforces this perception that women can't do these jobs. And we, we do actually see that. As, uh, yeah, it's recent. Research coming out of our school on, on a lot of this stuff. Actually, yeah. I didn't watch the uh, the launch because, I mean, who would? But also, um, <laughs> I was working on research that says that that we've just generated from um, a survey that we ran with colleagues in the School of Politics that voters really like female candidates. 
we're basically desperate for them. Mm. Um, well, there we saw it in New a, South Wales, that's for it sure. It yeah. just stops at the parties. Yeah. The parties. Well, can can have, I add something to this? Yes. I, I think there's a, my view of the electorate is they're looking for something that's different than business as usual. Yeah. Mm. And that can be and, and, and should be women candidates. But I think it's more than that. I think it's an issue of integrity. So I think this issue of an integrity commission, if, depending on what happens in May 18th yeah, and the nature of that integrity. But I think that's a – there's an underlying series of events that have happened in the last few months, but particularly, of course, with the, the government and, of course, during the election campaign with hashtag Watergate. Yeah, one this of those an goes to an area issue, of your expertise. There, and they identify issue. with senior male uh, uh, ministers. Mm. And so mm. I think people are looking for something different. And yes, it can be uh, younger candidates, it can be women candidates, a diverse range of candidates, but somebody who's different and has, I think, that idea of authenticity, but I think coupled with authenticity is integrity. Yeah, integrity and the promise of doing politics a bit differently. Instead yes. of having bulls like um, yes. you know, uh, Barnaby Joyce uh, kind of, you know, yes. kind of bombastically Labor, 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 labor. Yeah, I mean. But authentic and um, with integrity, but has never said something dumb on Facebook. Yeah, and that's why I think some of these independents uh, are getting traction. I mean, it's not just who they're opposed mm. to, who they're competing against, but they also have that sense of integrity. I mean, I don't know Absolutely. any of them personally, but but the fact that you're an independent, you're standing, mm. you're standing up for a, a range of issues, particularly mm. social issues that you care deeply about, that's yeah. what they're saying, then I think that that commands respect by by voters. And I think that's part of why we get this this shifting from the from the traditional parties into these independents, because they're looking for something different and looking for something that's not business as usual. And yeah. that's a really important point. I mean, we were discussing before about Morrison's campaign being re- really presidential. Well, there's another reason for that, and that's because key ministers are busy defending their seats against <laughs> high-profile independents yes. who with, yes. with, with, with all of these things we've said, like either diversity or integrity or the magic combination of both. So it's, 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 they had, there is no other choice but for Morrison to front the show because there's, because he doesn't, he can't draw on the backup of his senior ministers who are de- defending themselves or hiding away because they've done something. Yeah, What's happened to Maurice Payne? I mean, in the sense of where, where she's she a been? senator. Yeah, so. but still, she's a you know part of the government. Why? I mean, I don't, haven't noticed very much attention to to her involvement. Do we know no, anything the, about? Well, I, I agree. I mean, that, that just sort of goes to the point that Doesn't pretty well mean. everyone who's not Scott Morrison is left out of this campaign. Yeah. Um, I mean, he's he's you know moving around a lot. He's campaigning very hard. And I think, uh, objectively speaking, within the context of the task he's doing, he's doing it pretty well. He's um, he's a, a, a pretty relentless figure and uh, I think has good sort of street fighting instincts. But they have a campaign that, as I say, is very presidential and it really hasn't sort of drawn up any other dominant figures. Um, I heard Matthias Corman speaking on Radio National this morning um, but you know it's it's rel- and and uh, Josh Frydenberg I think was on Insiders recently and uh, you know so the, the, the sort of senior economic ministers Josh is the deputy prime ministers or deputy leader of the Liberal Party anyway so um, inevitable that he would be involved also as as treasurer but really um, it, it it's not a campaign that's kind of about the government it's a campaign about trying to keep Labor from being the government and, and using prime Scott minister. Morrison to do it yeah, yeah. <clears throat> what about them um, I just finish on this. Um, debate about 
the discussion about early voting. There were 660,000 votes cast in the first five days of early voting. That's about twice what happened in the first week of early voting in 2016. Admittedly, there was only four days of polling then uh, because uh, I think it started on a Tuesday. But nonetheless, uh, we, you know, we, we've seen a, a you know, serious escalation in that. And of course, there are theories around what's happening here. Some of it's wishful thinking. It might also happen to be true as well. We don't know. But, you know, obvious one is that there's an impatience to get rid of this government. There's a, you know, there's an urgency for change and people are looking to get it done first. Uh, any any thoughts about that, uh, Quentin? I really don't have any expertise in that. I'm not a political scientist, but my figuring of this is that if you're voting early, you've made your mind up early. And if you've yeah. made your mind up early, you're more than likely to be opposed to the government. That would be my take on this. They may well be some people who, of course, are traveling. And, mm. you know, yeah, legitimate and, but, users but, of but, it. Yeah. But why would that be more than double than three years ago? So so there's clearly some something that's changed fundamentally, and I suspect – my view, that uh, – and then it's uninformed – is that it's probably more anti-government than than pro-government. That would be my take on it. I had an interesting uh, exchange on Twitter with uh, the uh, journalist Gay Elkhorn, uh, who's, um, you know, I, I hold in high regard. And she was lamenting the um, this, this tendency because she said it was a uh, – uh, you know, a great tradition that we all come together on the same day and vote and, and that this seemed to be breaking down. My take is somewhat different than that. Uh, I, I, I get the feeling that people are taking back control of the of their consumption of the election campaign. They're sort of getting to a point and saying, all right, I've heard enough. I don't want to be involved in this, you know, what was essentially a pretty intellectually dull exercise of being hammered and hammered and hammered with a whole bunch of simplistic messaging. And they're saying, I want to vote and then I want to switch off. I think both of those things can be true, that, you know, I, I am all for early voting. I think if we're in a system with compulsory voting, we need to make it as easy as possible. A lot of the people who vote early are elderly. So there's not always this sort of inbuilt, uh, well, there's not necessarily an inbuilt advantage for labor. But I've, and I've published some research on this. People who do vote early, if we hold their, their age kind of constant, so you're taking out the older voters. Um, they have made up their mind and they don't like, they don't like the incumbent leader, um, which kind of makes sense. You know, um, they, they want to punish the incumbent prime minister. So but I really lament the loss of election debts. It is something, and we talk about this in these sort of very hagiographic terms that, you know, and, and they're very like the golden era of Australian politics terms, but, um, it is important, I think, that we've had these very festive, very social, local community kind of election days. That's something that we that that will go by the wayside now, and we can't really get it back. You can't have I a democracy sausage over uh, you know, three <laughs> yeah. weeks, can you? I, mean, I don't think you'll lose it. I really don't. I think even if the numbers keep, you know, um, growing, I might add that I did vote myself this morning. As an early <laughs> voter, and the first thing that I was asked was, "Are you an eligible early voter?" So it's not that you have to have a reason, even if it they no, can't prove it. You have to, you have to have to say, and I will be overseas. But if I wasn't going overseas, I would have been an early voter because I don't vote on Shabbat. The, I'm an observant Jew, so right, in that sense, right. I've all, you know since that has been an important part of my identity, I, I haven't. But if I had been in Australia, I would have walked down because I can walk around. I just can't vote on the day, but I would have probably walked down after the synagogue service to go and partake in that festivity. And I don't think we will lose that. I think that that even if the numbers keep 
growing for whatever reasons that that has become a significant part of um, our sort of citizenship vibe in the country. Absolutely. I hope we don't because yeah. it's the biggest fundraiser for my daughter's primary school. Yeah. It's, it, oh, it just dwarfs everything else. Well, there's a website where you can go and look for polling places that do have a sausage. So I think I think it might be um, safe for now. <laughs> yeah. As a Canberran now, though, I miss the tally room. That's what I think is a real shame in terms of the civic yes. vibe that that was such, you know, from well, that the time that I moved to Canberra, night, wasn't it? it was yeah. just a highlight because I could go at the end of the Sabbath and partake in that whole activity. And that is sadly gone. Well, thank you very much for your contributions today. Kim Rubenstein, Quentin Grafton, Jill Shepherd, Maria Taflaga, who's here with me each week. You've been listening to Democracy Sausage with Mark Kenny coming to you out of ANU and Policy Forum. If you want to talk to us on Twitter, our Twitter handle is APPS Policy Forum or Apps Policy Forum. The Facebook group is Policy Forum Pod and an email is podcast at policyforum.net. And join us next week for the uh, what will be, I suppose, the penultimate episode of Democracy Sausage before election 2019.